Um, so we are in a sermon series going through the Gospel of John. I believe this is our seventh week, so we're going to finish up chapter two today. But just a quick recap. You'll notice that the recaps are going to get more brief, and I can't cover. The further we get in, there's, there's less I can cover because I can't cover all of it. So uh, in the first chapter and a half thus far, we've seen uh, Jesus being viewed and named as God, the Son of God, the Lamb of God. He is God himself. And in the first chapter, we saw him begin to call his first disciples to himself to follow him. Uh, and then last week, we saw him do his first miraculous sign, turning water into wine. So what we've seen thus far is that he's proving John right. All the things that John has said about him were seen embodied and exemplified in the ways that he is living and acting. And we're going to see a little bit more of that this morning. So we're going to be in John 2. Uh, if you have Bibles, you can turn there. If you've got devices, you can swipe there. You can also follow along on the screen behind me if you'd like. But I'm going to pick it up in verse 12, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. After this, so this being when Jesus had uh, turned water into wine, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You guys pray with me. Thanks, God, for this opportunity that we have to uh, explore your word. I pray that you would teach us and instruct us. Uh, God, where our hearts are hard right now, would you soften them? Uh, and would you pierce our hearts with the beauty and the truth of the gospel? We need good news. And we know that the gospel, as you say, the gospel is the best news in the world. And so, God, help us to see it, see it afresh, see it anew. And I pray that you would draw us nearer to yourself in these moments, that you would increase our trust in you. In your great name, I pray. Amen. So in verse 12, uh, it talks about some of Jesus' travels. So he had been in Cana in Galilee, which if you would look at first century map in, in Israel, uh, would be in the northern part of Israel. And then he traveled 16 miles east to Capernaum. Remember, this is all on foot. And he ends up staying a few days there uh, before he heads down to Jerusalem, which is a trip southward of about 85 miles or so. 
But he's heading to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Just a quick word on the Passover. So the Passover is a celebration uh, where Israel would gather together to remember God's deliverance for them. So many, many years ago, Israel had been enslaved in Egypt. They were oppressed under the king or what was known as the Pharaoh of Egypt. They pleaded with the Pharaoh, let us go. Uh, worship our God, and he said no. So God sent plagues upon Egypt, and then the Pharaoh relented and said, okay, go, but then he changed his mind and brought the people back, and then God brought a final plague upon Egypt. And that final plague was that every male firstborn would die in Egypt. And what we need to understand is that includes Israel. So every male firstborn, be it human, be it animal, be it whatever it is, is going to die, but God comes to Israel and he, he tells them, if you will sacrifice a lamb and you will take the blood from that lamb and you will paint it on the doorframe of your house, when my spirit comes through, I will see that blood and that blood will cover you and I will pass over your house and your firstborn will not die. And this is ultimately what we see on the cross as Jesus has his blood shed, and those who trust in Jesus, God's wrath will pass over them as well. But the Jews would gather together annually to remember what he had done, how he had delivered them, how he had shown kindness towards them, the power that he displayed in that act. And then in verse 14, so everyone would gather together. In verse 14, we find Jesus coming to the temple, and it says, in the temple. So we have to understand what's going on here is not just outside the temple. We, we don't know exactly. Is it actually in the temple? Is it just kind of on the fringes? We don't know. But the idea being expressed here is it's in the temple. These activities are actually happening in the temple. And then it says, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers. Now, interestingly, what's going on here, it began as a service to those who were traveling to celebrate the Passover. So people would travel many miles, and they were supposed to bring their own animals to sacrifice. But what people realize, it's a little difficult to wrangle sheep or, or cows or whatever it might be and bring those sacrifices to the temple. So someone could set up a shop, basically, and they could sell these things. So people didn't have to fight their animals all the way to Jerusalem. They could just travel there with ease on foot, however easy that was at that time, and then they could purchase the animals that they needed to sacrifice. So this is how it started out. It was a convenience at some level. But if we think about normal human behavior with something like this, with a convenience, right? Where we go with this, especially if we think about the people who are providing this service, eventually you're going to start to consider, well, I think that I could make more money. I could create an additional upcharge. I could do these uh, various things to create a greater profit at some level. And I think that's part of what we see Jesus coming against at some level. It also says a, a convenience. It mentions the money changers. The money changers are there because there's an annual temple tax that all Jewish males need to pay. But that temple tax was collected in a certain type of coin. Oftentimes, they didn't carry it around in normal days. So they would have to come, they'd have to exchange the money, get this coin, and then they could pay the temple tax when they were there to celebrate the, the Passover. Now, 
One could argue logically, what's going on here just seems like it's a really nice service. Like it's a convenience, right? It's very practical. People are able to have a nice journey. They can buy their animal, and then they can bring it and go have it sacrificed. But I think that Jesus' actions, the way that he acts here, is implying that there's something much more going on. And so what we see with Jesus is that he's always pushing from the physical, the things that we can see, to the spiritual. And so that's kind of where we have to go with this at some level. Ultimately, he's getting at the idea of worship here, okay? And if you think about how worship occurred in the Old Testament, and especially according to Old Testament law, it was very transactional. So God gave laws to people, right? And, And he would say, follow the Ten Commandments, okay? If you follow these, I will bless you. I will accept you. And so it's very transactional in this regard. And, and if we kind of take that into our modern day and where, where humanity in our sinfulness would take that is we would say, okay, if I read my Bible, if I go to church, if I serve in this certain way or with this certain frequency, then when I need it, God's going to be there for me. I've kind of put God in my debt. And when it comes time to pay that debt, God's going to, he's going to show up and he's going to give back to me what I've earned. And what we see here is that worship could be very transactional. I give, God gives back. And what ultimately happens here is that people are controlling God, right? That's the mindset that we can fall into is that people are controlling God at some level. And so part of what Jesus is doing as he is confronting this is he's saying worship is not transactional. It's intended to be an awe-filled experience. He wants us to see God for who he really is. He is far above all else. He is full of glory. He is the king of kings. There is none like him. We are to be in awe of who he is and desire to worship him. Worship him, not so that we can get something back from him, not so we can get some trinkets that we can play with, but because we're overwhelmed with who he is and we want to give him worship. Now, we can, similar to what's going on in this story right here, we also can turn the church into a place of commerce when we emphasize our preferences. So if we think about like a normal Sunday gathering, everybody has preferences, right? Like I like music done this way. I like these various songs. I like it when uh, the pastor does this or doesn't do this. I like it when this person greets. I like it when the sound is this level, this volume, and but not not this high because then it's hurting my ears or whatever. We all have preferences at some level. And it's very easy because we live in a consumer, consumeristic culture when we come here to view it as a convenience store, right? Like, I'll take a little bit of that and some of this. Ah, not that. Community, I'll, ju- I'll just leave that to the side, right? But I'll, I'll take these other things at some level. And I think part of what Jesus is pushing on right here is the idea to predicate effective worship or worship that we think is right on our preferences is consumerism. And, and that's the water that we swim in all day. And so we, we have to be so aware of this reality. It is so easy for us to want to pick and choose the parts of Christianity that we like and to just discard the others at some level. Now, let me just make this comment. Not all convenience is evil. I'm not saying that at all. 
We all enjoy conveniences, and conveniences we should see as a gift from God. But I think where we run into trouble is when the, gifts, the gift becomes an entitlement. When the gift becomes an entitlement, I have to have it, it needs to be this way, uh, then the gift has replaced the giver. The gift has replaced the giver, and we've gone off the rails. So we see Jews coming to celebrate the Passover. And these individuals are providing the, ser- the service, but those who are providing the service, uh, based on Jesus' actions, are more focused on their gain, on their preferences, their convenience, what they can get out of it. And so these individuals are passing over the main thing, which is to worship God. So Jesus sees a bunch of animals for sale. He sees people exchanging money, and he's probably thinking like, oh, this is what the Mall of America might look like in about 2,000 years or whatever, right? And so what he does in verse 15, it says he drives them out. He drives them out. Now I'm going to be really clear about what's going on here. So I went on Google this week, and I Googled, Jesus cleanses the temple. I was just like, I want to see culturally, what does this look like, or what are people viewing as Jesus cleansing the temple. And I'll be honest with you, like, I was astounded. I was astounded with what I saw. So the large majority of these pictures has Jesus beating the trash out of people. Like, literally beating the trash out of people. People are, like, cowering in fear. Like, in the fetal position, as Jesus is over them, like, taunting them, has this massive weapon, like, it says whip of cords, but it's like this massive weapon, like he spent years building it, and he's just, like, swinging it at these people. I was like, what is going on here? So I went back and I reread this. I like, what am I missing? What am I missing here at some level? And so, though we get a glimpse of Jesus in these verses, that he is strong, and he is tough, and he is lion-like. I don't think the picture of Jesus as some crazed lunatic who's wildly swinging a weapon at people is a helpful depiction for us, not in any way. I don't think it jives with the other depictions we get of Jesus uh, throughout Scripture. So I want to try and paint a picture here at some level of of what is going on um, in this scene. So Jesus sees his father's house being used as a temple to worship something or someone other than God himself. And he's angry. Like, there's no denying that he's angry here, right? So he does his thing. What we see him doing is he is driving out sin. Jesus is driving out sin. The same thing that we would talk about on a spiritual level in a physical uh, with a physical example, he is driving out sin. It, similar to what we talked about in John chapter 1, how when Jesus comes, he is the true light who drives out darkness. So that's what's happening here. He is light that's driving out darkness in the temple. So it says that he is making a whip of cords. Okay, so um, what we need to understand is this wasn't like a high-tech weapon that he brought with him and was like he had this premeditated plan. He's making a whip of cords as he sees what's going on. He, like, grabs something, and he's just putting it together. That's what's going on. He's jimmy-rigging this thing, right? And I think what's really important here is we need to understand that he's using it on the animals, okay? So if you think about this just logically, if Jesus goes and starts whipping people, like, the sheep are going to keep making their weird noises, and the cow is just going to keep chomping on hay or grass or whatever it is, right? If he's trying to drive out the people. If he drives out the animals, 
and this is the livelihood of the people who are selling them, what are the people going to do? They're going to go after the animals, right? And so Jesus is using the whip of cords to drive out the animals. And with this, no doubt, he is most likely saying words to people as well, encouraging very strongly the individuals to get out of the temple as well, to stop doing that here. But I, I think it's really important for us to understand that that whip of cords is being used on the animals. Now, um, if that creates issues for you, I mean, this is, maybe this is where PETA started. I don't know. Like, that could have been the genesis of PETA at some level. But if this creates issues for you at some level, what we need to understand here is we see Jesus treating animals better here than he will be treated in a couple years. He is going to get the absolute trash beat out of him. And, and part of what we see is he has more respect for animals than others do for him, the Son of God, who never sinned. And so I think that's instructive for us in this, that we understand he's treating animals better than he will be treated himself. Now, if I'm in this story, like I'm one of his disciples, I'm just like probably geeking out at what's going on here. I'm like, you see that? Man, oh snap, like he's just going crazy at some level, right? And so uh, they're, they're, they're probably just, I have no idea what's going on. It's not in the text, but what we don't see in the text is they're not like, oh man, there's a crazy uncle. I knew we should not follow this dude, and I'm bouncing, right? Like, we never see that from the disciples um, in these verses. So what I think we need to focus in on here, though, is, is not so much the mechanics. Like, oh, was he beating the people? Was he beating the animals? Uh, what, what all was going on? I think what we really need to see here is that what's going on is this is profane worship. This is profane worship happening in his father's house. Jesus sees sin, and then he zealously attacks that. And, and I love the, the response of the disciples that we do get here. What, the, what do they do? John says that they remembered a Bible verse. They remembered a Bible verse, Psalm 69, 9. Zeal for your house will consume me. So uh, just a plug for memorizing scripture, like some of you might, you might like that, and some of you might not like that. But um, when we memorize scripture, when we understand the storyline of the gospel, it will allow us to kind of see how God is working in and around us in a variety of ways. And that's part of what's going on here. But I think it's really interesting that the disciples are remembering something that David said. So King David is known as the greatest king of Israel, okay? Until Jesus. If you look at the life of King David— he is the greatest king, but he is pointing forward. He's always pointing forward to an ultimate king, and that is Jesus. And so in his day, he had a ton of zeal for building a temple, and he never got to do it. But in the midst of that, he got a lot of opposition. Others didn't like that idea. They didn't want to make it easy for him at some level. And so he says, zeal for your house will consume me. And now we see Jesus repeating this as well. He has zeal for his father's house. And I think one thing that we can draw from this in a really practical way for ourselves is that 
we should be violent towards anything in our lives that seeks to detract from Jesus' honor. So if we look in our hearts and we see things, see sin, see tendencies, see preferences that seek to make more of us or more of the gifts that God gives rather than him, stealing honor from him, we need to be violent towards that. Uh, there's a Puritan that, I, uh, his name's John Owen, but he wrote a, a book on sin, which was probably a really walk, a great walk in the park as he wrote this book, but uh, it's a great book called Mortification of Sin. But in that book, uh, he says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. There's no middle ground. You can't play with it. It's, there's no neutrality with sin. Either it's killing you or you are killing it. So knowing Jesus is sinless, okay? It's clear throughout Scripture that Jesus is depicted as sinless. By him clearing the temple, by what he's doing there, he is not committing sin. Okay? Also, I think it's probably safe to say, and I'm not going to say this conclusively, but probably, uh, if he did not do that, if he did not do that, he may have been sinning. So uh, these are the sins of commission and sins of omission is how theologians talk about it. So a sin of commission is a sinful action in word, thought, or deed. Those are the things that we're doing. Sin of omission is knowing the right thing to do. In essence, God commands something or he compels something in our hearts, but then we refuse to do that. And so I think oftentimes we talk about sins of commission. Don't do this, right? But there's this whole other side of things of sins of omission. When should you say something to somebody else? When should you reach out to somebody? Did you feel prompted to serve someone in a certain way and you just dismissed it, saying, I'm too busy? I, I think the busyness thing is, it's an easy out for us a lot of times, right? Well, my calendar's full. I've got all these things going on with roommates or with my family or other activities. They're all, they're all good things, right? And so I, God really doesn't expect me to do that. And there might be many of those things that he doesn't. But I think we probably have a tendency to dismiss things out of hand more quickly than maybe God would want us to. I was chatting with somebody this week um, about a coworker that they have. And this coworker of theirs uh, is living in blatant sin, uh, doesn't care, is just kind of doing their own thing. But um, this individual just commented how, uh, looking at this individual's life, a year ago, he says, I would have openly mocked this individual, and I would have had nothing to do with him. No interest in him at all. Just let him do his thing and leave him alone, and I'll do my thing. But in the course of life, uh, this individual has felt compelled to reach out to this individual because one thing he's noticed as he observed his life is that this guy seems to have no friends. He has no friends. And so he presses into the inconvenience. He presses into the discomfort. He presses into the disagreement at some level, and he pursues this individual. And it's this beautiful thing to see. I was so encouraged, super encouraged 
just hearing this story of how God shapes our hearts. Maybe we don't see the change day to day, right? But for him to be able to look back a year and say, there is no way, I would have openly made fun of this dude. But not today. And as he walks through his day, wanting to be mindful of how he can give gospel, how he can give good news to this individual. And, and I'm not saying this would have been a sin of omission for him. It might have been. It might not have been. But he's taking the steps to push into that which is inconvenient and maybe di- uncomfortable for him to pursue another with good news. Okay, so the Jews are not pleased with Jesus. And so they ask him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What authority, what right do you have to mess with our setup here? And who knows, maybe some of the religious leaders of the temple, maybe they're getting a kickback here as well, right? They've possibly um, entered into an arrangement, a rental arrangement, where they give these individuals some space and they can get some some payment as well. What's really interesting, though, is on various occasions, Jesus is asked for a sign, and he won't bite. In fact, he'll call the people asking for the sign evil. Say, you wicked and adulterous generation, because he knows what's in their hearts. But what's really interesting here is he doesn't do that. They ask for a sign, and he opens the door. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. This is pretty astounding, because this is different from a lot of other interactions we see throughout the New Testament. He's giving them an opportunity. Now, the Jews made a reasonable assumption. Uh, They thought he was talking about the physical temple. And I think this is normal for us, right? We are fixated on the physical. There's all kinds of stuff going going on around us. There's spiritual realities that we don't see. We are fixated on the physical. But as I mentioned earlier, Jesus is continually moving from the physical to the spiritual. And all these physical examples are pointing to greater, ultimate spiritual realities. So we marvel at people who can achieve great things. We're fascinated by people who accomplish great feats at some level. And that's what we hear in their response to Jesus. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. Sounds like a a great monument, right? And you're going to raise it up in three days? Now, if we think about the temple, what it is. In the Old Testament, the temple was where God's presence was. Okay, so if people wanted to meet with him, they would go to the temple because that's where God's presence resided. And so they would go to the temple, and that's where they could worship him. So it's sacrilegious, it's even illegal for them to destroy the temple. Everything that that they would want to do is they would want to preserve it. And we kind of hear this implicitly in their response. But they never give a true answer. They just make this expression of doubt, right? Like, you can't do that. But they never take Jesus up on it. Show us. Do it. Because they don't want to mess with that which is sacred to them. But check this out. The Jews desire to preserve worship in the temple. They want to continue to facilitate worship there. 
But their desire to do that is actually destroying the very thing. These people who are trying to facilitate worship by selling animals, they're actually destroying worship. That's what Jesus is saying. That in their attempt to preserve and facilitate, they are actually destroying the very thing that they are trying to preserve and facilitate. And in so doing, they are also destroying themselves. They're also destroying the temple and its function. The reality is, we do this as well. We're very similar to these people who are selling things, trying to facilitate or preserve worship. So we talk about grace quite a bit here. And I think that's very reasonable to talk about grace a ton because the gospel is this never-ending flow of grace. It is a river that just continues to come, gush forth, and it gives grace over and over and over. But at some point we need to balance this as well because we have a tendency to overplay this card at some level. And I think that this is a good example for us here because we can tend to minimize holiness, but clearly we get a picture of Jesus here where he is concerned with holiness. He's concerned not only that he is worshipped or that God is worshipped, but how he is worshipped as well. So Romans 2.4, it says, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness, not knowing that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So we can look at God's kindness and, and maybe look at sin in our lives and can say, ah, there's grace for that. Jesus will cover that. He is kind at some level. But what this is pushing on here is that God's kindness is intended to move us to the point where we turn from sin, to repent from it, to not indulge in it, but to move us away from it. And I think, if we're honest, many of us probably lose sight of this call, lose sight of God's glory, of this desire for us to be holy. And and we can get casual in our worship. We can cave to our preferences. We can worship other things. And in so doing, we can destroy ourselves and destroy Jesus' church in much the same way we see these individuals who are selling the animals are doing as well. So we never sin in a vacuum. And what I mean by that is our sin is never only affecting us. It always affects others. There's always residual effects. There's always ripple effects to our sin. It's never, we never sin in a vacuum. And so we have to realize that even when we're by ourselves in a room sinning in that capacity, uh, we are stealing from those close to us, whether it's, it's time or it's affection. We're, we're cultivating affection for one thing while not cultivating affection for Jesus or for someone else. There are always, always residual effects to our sin. One other thing I want to point out here is that Jesus is part of a story. Okay, so he is He's involved in a process. So what's going on here is he makes a statement. He says, destroy this temple, 
and in three days I will raise it up. Okay? That statement is not going to be understood by his disciples until he raises from the dead. Right? No one gets it right now. And so what we need to understand is that Jesus is involved in a longer story, in a longer process. And I think this is instructive for us as we think about our non-Christian friends, those that we rub shoulders with. We don't need to feel like we need to get there in one day. This is part of a larger story. And so as we invite people into our lives, as we show hospitality and generosity, as we give people listening ears, this is part of a larger process that we want to continually invite people into. And they may not understand for years. We might not understand either for years, but the call is to be patient and to continually invite, show hospitality, show generosity, give of ourselves, welcome people into our lives. All right. And I'll be honest here, when we get to this point in the story, it it turns into a little bit of a head-scratcher for me, because you've got this dialogue going going on between Jesus and the temple officials, but what happened next? Right? Like, did Jesus just walk away? Or how did that conversation resolve itself? We don't get a good resolution. We just have this clarifying comment from John where he explains Jesus is saying that the real temple, his body, will be destroyed and raised in three days. So though the, the conversation maybe doesn't get the resolution that I would prefer, with it, God gives us everything that we need because that's what we've got. But in this, we need to understand there's a massive shift going on here. So the structural temple, the temple that... The, the Jewish officials thought Jesus was talking about is being replaced by Jesus himself. His body is the temple. He is the temple. And so the idea being that we go to Jesus to worship. And I think it's really interesting. If, if you know anything about the temple uh, that was constructed at, at this time, it was... It was constructed in such a way to keep people out. So what I mean by that is you had this area for non-Jews. You had this area for women. You had this area for men. You had this area for priests and this room for the high priest. And, and so the intention here is that it would keep people out at some level. But in Jesus, what we see in him is he's inviting people in. He's saying, come in and be cleansed. Come to me. And so this whole idea or this massive shift that's happening here is is no longer go to a building so that you can worship, but worship. Come to Jesus anywhere, anytime. Come to him and worship. And then chapter 2 ends with three thought-provoking verses. First of all, there's a number of unmentioned signs, um, which is interesting, right? So not all the signs that we're reading in here in the Gospel of John are the ones that occurred. There's many other signs that Jesus did, and, and John highlights this later on near the end of John when he says that there's, 
there's many other signs that cannot be contained in this book. And so Jesus is doing all these other signs, and people are believing in him. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He knew what was in man. And so for us, it's instructive in the sense that we don't live our lives trying to impress Jesus so that he would entrust himself to us. We don't live our lives trying to get Jesus to fawn over us, to extol us in some way. The reality is I don't know everything about you. The closest people in your life don't know everything about you. But Jesus does. He knows all of it. The vindictive thoughts that we have throughout the course of a week, the trash we might look at on our various screens, what excites us, what frustrates us, what causes us to be angry. He sees it all. He knows it all. And he knows, because he sees our hearts, he knows that you and I are not worthy to be trusted. And I think, if we stop long enough, that we know it too. We know it. In our friendships, our relationships, whatever they may be, in our, in our work, in our marriages, we must remember this. We are not better than whoever we might compare ourselves to. There's a level playing field here. We're all in the same deal, the same category, that Jesus doesn't entrust himself to us because he knows what's in us. And that should be a sobering truth for us. But also, Jesus doesn't leave us on our own. He doesn't just kick us to the curb and say, well, I can't trust them. I'm out. In chapter 1, it talks about how Jesus comes in grace and truth. So the truth is he doesn't trust us. He doesn't trust in us. But the grace is that he comes to deal with those very things. He comes to cleanse us. And, and this is our gospel application. So it's gospel application because it's all about who Jesus is and what we do. So we don't walk out of here and say, these are the four things I need to do to be a good Christian. We reflect on who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Let that inform how we live. Let that motivate us in all that we do. So the gospel application is we need Jesus to come to us and to cleanse us, or he comes to us. He's taking the initiative. He's coming to us. doesn't say, come find me. Don't come search in the dark. He comes to us, and he cleanses us. He deals with the very thing that causes him to not entrust himself to us, the, the very things that cause us to separate from him. He comes to cleanse us. So we worship things other than Jesus. We have sins of omission and commission. We care more about God's stuff than about God himself. And so we need Jesus to come to us and to violently drive out the sin in our hearts that seeks to deceive us and to destroy us. And as he does this, it talks about in 1 Peter 2 that he makes us into living stones. Living stones being built up as a spiritual house. We read in Ephesians earlier, Jesus is the chief cornerstone of this, of this building. 
made up of living stones. So there's no temple that we go to. But yet, in some sense, we are a temple. When Christians gather, we are a living, breathing temple. It's interesting to look at the biblical storyline. Where was the temple in the beginning? Where is the temple in the end? How significant is it? There's tons of significance throughout the Old Testament. But if you look in the beginning, there is no temple in the Garden of Eden. There's no temple there. If you look at the end of Scripture, Revelation 21 22 says this, And I saw no temple in the heavenly city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The temple is temporary. It is not ultimate. And that allows us to worship Jesus anywhere and everywhere, including in a school, right? But in our jobs, in our hobbies, on the golf course, wherever we might go, we can and are called to worship Jesus in all of life. As Christians, we are like living stones, part of this new spiritual temple, bringing God's presence wherever we go, bringing light into darkness, bringing hope of Jesus' cleansing work to the dirtiest parts of our cities and our neighborhoods, bringing hope to the dirtiest hearts that we encounter, dirty hearts just like ours. And so we remember how Jesus does this, how he brings cleansing, and a primary way by which we do this is by celebrating the Lord's Supper. His bloody sacrifice that cleanses us, that causes his wrath to pass over us so that it would be poured out on Jesus himself. So we're going to take a few moments here where we are going to eat bread and drink from the cup to remember how Jesus gave his body. He shed his blood so that we could be cleansed, so that we don't have to live lives where we've got this burden hanging over our head that we can never do enough. We can never fix this dirt in our hearts. We celebrate the fact that he has come and he cleanses us. He does what we could never do in and of ourselves. So here at Center Church, we practice open communion. So it's for anyone who has trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, who realizes that we have dirt in our hearts and we need to be cleansed, and we've done that. And, and if that's not you, then don't feel like you have to fake it. Uh, I think this is a pretty gracious environment. You're not going to be judged for that. If you find yourself in a spot where you want, to, you want to know more about that, I'd love to have that conversation with you in the midst of celebration or even afterwards as well. So in a minute, the band's going to come up. They're going to play a number of songs, and uh, we're going to sing together, and any time during those songs, you are invited to come up here and to remember who Jesus is and what he has done for you, for the dirt in your heart, whether it was past, current, present, or future. So, will you guys stand with me? I'm going to read a passage of scripture from 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we will move into this time of worship. So this passage is from 1 Corinthians 11. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, 
took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. One other word of clarification here. So, um, I've talked regularly when we centralize communion, how uh, many of us come from backgrounds where this is a very individualistic practice, and I want to continually invite us into making this a communal uh, activity. And that can look a lot of different ways, but, but for this morning, maybe it's you praying with somebody else, whether it's someone you came with or someone you would just like, like to pray with at some level. I'm going to be off on the side. If anyone would like to pray with me, I'd be happy to do it. Um, and, and it can be specific things. It can be general things. And so that's one way in which we can observe this communally and do this together. So let me pray for us, and then we will celebrate. Jesus, thank you that you come to us. We cannot come to you. We cannot climb a ladder to get to you.